Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Embracing what's fun with Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080. I want to say it was 2006, 7, possibly 8, although I don't think it was that late, when I saw Lightning Lou Christie, among other performers, at the Bushnell in Hartford. And I think that that was my very first time being exposed ever to the Bushnell And I remember it very well because there were a number of performers. Lou Christie was one of them. That was one of the songs that he performed. Um, But there were a number of other performers. And among them, little Peggy March. I will follow him. Um, And she went out into the lobby to meet people after the show. And I got to meet her. I got to get a picture with her. And I went looking for the picture. I know I have it somewhere, but I just can't seem to find it. I was going to post it ahead of today's show, but um, like I said, I I guess I have to do some more digging. Um, It must be on another computer or hard drive or something like that. That's the problem with the digital pictures. you got to go initiate a search party to go find them. But uh, yeah, that had to have been the very first time that I ever went to the Bushnell. And the most recent opportunity that I had to go there was about three weeks ago. And I went there because I had the opportunity to get a tour of the whole facility. I mean everything from the outside to the lobby to the box office to the projection room to the backstage where you have the stars dressing room, a.k.a. the green room. You have the electrician's room, which is also where they have the autograph wall. So, I mean, I was everywhere. I was on the stage and Clint Muller gave me such a thorough tour. And I know that there's somebody, and probably more than just one person, a number of people out in the Spotlight Connecticut audience this afternoon who are saying to me, you mean you can get a tour at the Bushnell? I didn't even know this myself until I was there. Uh, as you know, our sister station, Light 100.5, WRCH, put on Jason Alexander, Mr. George Costanza, as long as you're asking in early November. And I went there, I took my parents And we had lovely orchestra seats, maybe 13 or so rows back. And um, while I was there before the show, making sure that I was in the right vicinity to get to my seats, I asked one of the kind volunteers, I said, here are my seats. Just let me know which door I should go to, because I know that sometimes it can be a mad rush of people trying to find where they're supposed to go and get to their seats. And, uh, you know, we got talking, and my mother, who's standing there, you know, Moms, you know how moms are. They're very um, excited to tell people about what their kids do. And so she says to the volunteer, she says, well, you know, my son, Morgan, he works at Light 100.5's sister station, WTIC News Talk 1080. And I'm like, Mom, you don't have to tell the world. You don't have to tell everybody. But this starts the conversation. I mean, I kind of like to be uh, quiet sometimes. Um, But this started the whole conversation about how I ought to do one of my Spotlight Connecticut shows on the Bushnell. And I said, well, that's not a bad idea, but what can we do? And I remember Diane, I got talking with her. She was one of the volunteers that I chatted with that night. She said, well, I'm a tour guide. And you know we offer tours. I said, no, I don't know that. And so she said, well, yes, we do. And, um, you know, here's my card and here's how you can line it up. And so I did just that. So yes, you can get a tour at the Bushnell. I lined it up. We did it earlier this month. I recorded it with Clint Muller, a great tour guide. There's a whole team of them, um, maybe a few dozen different tour guides that can take you around and show you literally everything that you can possibly know and see at the Bushnell Performing Arts Center. And for anybody, before we start playing back those recordings, anybody curious, you can go to bushnell.org. 
And on the home page, you'll see the word visit. If you click on visit, this is how you can find information about a tour. Uh, you'll see there are a bunch of options, directions, parking, um, sign language, Bushnell for kids, all these things. Well, if you keep going through the list and all of the tiles that they have, you just have to click on one word. It says tours, and then it will tell you how you can line up a tour at Bushnell, at the Bushnell in Hartford. And then from there, they'll get in touch with you. They are completely free, by the way. Completely free. It is such a service that they offer because so many times, whenever history is involved or a museum's involved, they always want you to fork over cash. And um, they always try to put a price to history. And, and it seems to me that at the Bushnell, they're very proud of their legacy. They have a team of volunteers who are very devoted to the mission and history themselves, and they understand everything that there is to know about the Bushnell, and they just want to share that knowledge. And so what you've got to do is just go on to thebushnell.org and click on Tours under Visit, and you'll be able to line up your tour. Now, obviously, this is a very methodic tour. Um, they take you from before the Bushnell existed all the way up to the present day. And they tell you about the architecture of the facility. They tell you about the founding fathers. They tell you about historic performances. They tell you about the big mural that you see in the theater on the ceiling. They take you up to the projectionist room. They take you onto the stage. And they pretty much do it in that order. So as you go about this tour, it builds and it builds and it builds to perhaps some of the things that people think that, uh, you know, they would just go straight to the stage, but no, no, no. They take you from day one all the way up to the present, and it moves in a very linear and very sensible fashion. So, like I promised, we're going to play back excerpts of my conversations with Clint Muller, and, of course, we start right at the very beginning in the front of the building, talking about the outside, what the building used to be before it was the Bushnell, and how it was developed further. On the right-hand side is the original Bushnell Memorial Hall, as we knew it years ago. Um, it was, uh, Cornerstone was laid in 1928, um, and it was listed on the National Register of Historical Places, and there used to be apartments in this place before the Bushnell was actually built. It's traditional Georgian Revival exterior, um, and the interior is... Art Deco. But if you look at the exterior, you'll see the Indiana limestone at the base. It's an abandoned design or layout, which is an Art Deco element. Um, there was 90 railroad carloads of that. The walls are of some 2 million colonial bricks, and uh, there's 950 tons of structural steel that went into the building. Um, if it looks like a similar building in downtown Hartford, it should remind you of the uh, old state house. It has the cupola at the top, the pillars, the three doors, it's sort of the arched openings. Um, it was built to look as if it existed in the colonial days, but in a much more grander scale than the buildings surrounding it. When Clint said Art Deco, a light bulb went off in my head. I said, you know what, I do see Art Deco elements in this building, and we needed to talk a little bit because I'm into design and architecture. I, I wanted to talk with him a little bit more about Art Deco as a style and what it meant for the Bushnell, because think about it. The Bushnell opened in 1930, and the idea for the facility had started before that, but it opened officially January 1930, 
And obviously, guess what's going on? You've got the Great Depression. And Art Deco really reflected people's excitement for moving beyond the Depression. My grandmother grew up in breadlines in the 1930s. Obviously, they were thinking to themselves, better days have to be ahead. Think of Art Deco. It was a, it was a design element that was very fashionable in the early 1900s, up until probably the 1950s, 1960s. It started out as, um, it was very symmetrical in its design. It started out as crystal, jade, um, black lacquered wood, etc. It became so in demand that, the, the, let's say, the common man wanted it also. So they converted to plastics, glass, chrome, but the design was still there. Um, you may think of clinking cocktail glasses, um, gleaming skyscrapers, old Hollywood musicals, etc. Um, it was considered progress through technology. Um, better times are coming ahead. Remember the Depression, when we opened up on January 13, 1930, we're, we're, al we're almost 94 years old. Um, you know, it, it was a very difficult time. People went to the theater to escape. They put their finest clothing on. They, they get away from, from the Depression and everything. And um, so again, better times are coming ahead. Um, you saw cocktail shakers that look like rocket ships, very aerodynamic cars, etc. Et um, Rockefeller Center is another example, the Chrysler Building, all Art Deco is very, very popular. You might have thought to yourself, January 30th, 1930, how did they afford this? How did it get started? What was the birth of the idea of the Bushnell Performing Arts Center? Well, Clint talked about the Founding Fathers, and here's an excerpt of that. He was born in the Litchfield Hills in 1802, Horace and he went to Yale. He started out, he wanted to be a teacher, so he went to the Yale Law School. Horace that Bushnell, that is. So he went to Yale Divinity School, and he became a minister. And if you're familiar with downtown Hartford and the old G. Fox, it's now Capital Community College, directly across the street is a uh, congregational church. That's where Bushnell was ordained. Um, or he wasn't ordained there. He was a minister there in 1833. And he stayed there um, until, he stayed there 25 years. His salary was $1,500 a year at the time. Wow. That was considered a lot of money back then. He was married and had five children. His youngest was Dotha. She's one, the one that we're really going to concentrate on. But he was the leading American Protestant theologian of the 19th century. He was a civic visionary and a scientific genius. He had patents on home heating. Um, the Bushnell family was very big on public green spaces, thus Bushnell Park. Um, he was a political figure and was consulted for the Transcontinental Railway. Um, pioneer in city planning. Um, very strong um, fought for African-American rights, which his daughter Dotha continued. She also continued her father's legacy of being very pro for African-American rights. She, she worked very hard to do the betterment of, for the children of Hartford, school, um, school groups, vacation, you know, vacation schools per se, um, summer camps. She went to a sold out uh, performance at Springfield Symphony Hall in Springfield, Massachusetts. And she wanted, she, sold, she attended a sold out performance. Her very first person she saw there was Leopold Stokowski. He was a um, conductor, I think, of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and she thought, what a great way to honor my father. In comes her husband, Appleton Robbins Hillier. He died, at, he was married to Dotha, but died in 1915, left her quite a boatload of money, and she invested $800,000 in the stock market in 1919. She sold it just before the stock, like a month before the stock market crash. She had $3 million. So paid for this theater and she had $110,000 left over. You've got to wonder about that. Wow.
talk about just a plain old wow. I'm Morgan Cunningham at Spotlight Connecticut. We are playing back excerpts this hour from my one-on-one tour of the Bushnell Performing Arts Center in Hartford. Clint Muller is the tour guide, and he tells us about that very first concert, January 30th, 1930. When she had her theater opening, January 13th, 1930, she wanted Leopold Stokowski to be the, the gentleman to perform, and that name probably means nothing to you, but... Here's a picture from Fantasia of Leopold Stokowski with Mickey Mouse. And all you've got to do is go over to my Instagram or Facebook at MC News Talk, and I've got information about the Bushnell linked up there. We'll be back. WTIC in Hartford. Spotlight Connecticut is where you heard this. Noel, what should people listen for when they listen to the Casey sisters doing Oh Holy Night? The harmonies, that's really our specialty. That's what we go for is is really listen for the harmonies and the sister blend. Find the Spotlight Connecticut podcast on Odyssey. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y or wherever you get your podcasts. And as Clint and I were walking around the bush and we ended up going into an elevator which went all the way upstairs. And yes, there's a ghost story. And this is an elevator that you have to press and call the button. You have to press a button and it calls the elevator and it will travel as it's called. Interesting thing, though, over the years, this elevator would only travel to the floor we're going to, the projection room. Was it broken, or is that just how it was designed? We think it's the ghost of Dotha, because this was her private viewing area. So a few years ago, all the guts were, this, were changed because they couldn't figure out why it kept traveling up here. Ding, the doors would open up and there would be nobody here. They kept the cab, but they changed all the guts and everything. It still travels to this floor by itself. So, so it must be the ghost then. <laughs> there is a true haunting story here at the Bushnell. We've asked the stage manager, and they're here with load-ins and load-outs and stuff. They're here like at all, all hours of the day and night. And he said, we asked him that question about spirits or whatever, and he goes, I'll just tell you, he goes, I've seen stuff move that shouldn't be moving. And I'll just end it there. Maybe we'll save this for October and Halloween. I'm Morgan Cunningham at Spotlight Connecticut, playing back excerpts of my recording with Clint Muller, a tour guide at the Bushnell Performing Arts Center. You can get a free tour there if you're interested. Just go to bushnell.org and under visit, just click on tours. And one thing that I learned there was that they are very friendly in helping people who have disabilities. Let's say I'm it's a Broadway show, for instance, and it's here for a week. On the Sunday performance, they'll be on the edge of the stage, and they'll be signing the show for the deaf patrons. They use American Sign Language, which is all gestures and feelings, etc. One of the difficult shows to sign was um, My Fair Lady, because it had to do with diction, the rain in Spain kind of thing. And they also said Hamilton was quite different because it was rap and very fast. And they had to, in the room where it happens, in the room where it happens, they had to keep thinking of different gestures. So I think they got that script probably six months before and practiced quite a bit of time. We also have um, audio transcriber where if patrons are blind, they'll get a synopsis beforehand. So they can hear the music, they can hear the dialogue, but beforehand they may get some description on what the scene is like. So they wear special headphones courtesy of of customer service and... um, we also have assisted listening devices, which allows people who may have some hearing impaired just slightly, um, they can plug it in and they can hear the perfect dialogue without any obstruction. And then we walked into the projection room, 
which is where you'll find a bunch of wall tags, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying stickers or posters for Broadway shows that have actually been produced there at the Bushnell. These are called tags. So if you want to work up here, you have to belong to a union. And this is the projectionist's way of leaving their mark on the theater, like their autograph, so to speak. So you can see here, this one happens to be for T the Tina Turner, the musical that was in um, April 11 to the 16, 2023. It lists the spot that was um, handled and who was handled by. And then you'll see on the right, it's like, you know, local 125, local 84. The, the hashtag is local, local 84. Local 84 is Hartford. So they're from the Hartford um, Union. There's one over there I saw, it was local 74, which is New Haven. And the one on the doorway for Mamma Mia, there's a local number one, which is Broadway. I have no idea who the other numbers represent. It's just projectionists from all over the country. There's a room that I don't necessarily recall seeing before. Although, now that I think about that show that I saw with, remember I talked about at the top of the hour with Lou Christie and little Peggy March, it might have been in this room. Maybe. Maybe. If I can find the picture, I will know for sure. I can't wait to look later on tonight or tomorrow. Continuing to try to find that picture, I've got to find it. Although I remember my hair doesn't look that good. But there's this room that is called the Severn's Room. And when you're in there, you feel like you've taken a leap way back in time. Now, the rest of the building is pretty contemporary in a sense that it's very art deco. It's been refurbished a bit. But this room takes you back even further. It was designed intentionally so to be more colonial, more classic. I've never been in here before. So this is the Severn's room. It was dedicated to the grandson when he retired, uh, the second president. This is the only traditional room in the building, in the otherwise pure Art Deco building. Uh, this was designed in the colonial style as a special memorial to Horace Bushnell. It was originally known as a colonial room. Uh, the walls are hand-carved ponderosa pine. Uh, French doors lead to inviting terrace, portico, but they are locked now, so we can't really go out, but it is, it was nice when you could. Oil painting of Porce Bushnell right above the fireplace, and at one point that was a working fireplace. There's a chamber stage. There used to be a little baby grand piano, but this room's used for everything. This is another room that you could have. I've seen a wedding reception here. I've had training in here for volunteers. Small concerts could be in here. Um, they can set it any time you want. I've seen business meetings with big screens and presentations in here. If you're a patron and you're in the mezzanine level, these two sets of wooden doors would open up during uh, intermission, and this is where you would come for, to get drinks and or snacks. And this is where we will break for this half hour, and in the next half hour, we will make it to the stage, and we'll get backstage, and we'll hear some behind-the-scenes tales about people like this. Miss Diana Ross, I'm Morgan Cunningham on WTIC. We'll be back. Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. What a choice for a bumper song this is. <laughs> It's called Alligator Crawl. You know, I was thinking to myself, well, what did it sound like in 1930 when the Bushnell Performing Arts Center opened? And this was written in the late 20s, and it's such a bop. It really is. I said, well, this might be it. Um, Vance Waller wrote it. This is the performance Johnny Guineri did of it in 1978 on his album called Stealin' Apples. It's a fairly rare album, but worth finding if you're into that kind of music or if you like that song, that's one of many like it on that particular album. I'm Morgan Cunningham at Spotlight Connecticut, and you can find me on social media at MC News Talk. 
This is the time of the show where I tell you how you can get in touch with me. Maybe you have an idea for the show. You want to tell me you love me. You want to tell me you hate me. I can take it all. Believe me. I've heard it all, folks. I've heard it all. Um, You can email me, morgan.cunningham at odyssey.com. That's M-O-R-G-A-N dot C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M at A-U-D acy.com. So on Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram, my handle is at MC News Talk, and I've got a killer tie on that I'm wearing today, and you can see a little video of me wearing it at MC News Talk, or again, that email, morgan.cunningham at odyssey.com. You know, listeners are everywhere. When I went to the Bushnell, I mean, they knew that I was coming, obviously, but there were so many people there who were very complimentary of WTIC 1080 and of my work, and it's nice to meet all of them. And uh, I called my tax office this week to line up my appointment to get all of my money stuff taken care of. And I want to say hi to Judy, because Judy answers the phone, and whenever I say my name, she knows, I think actually before I say my name, she knows exactly who it is on the other line. And she tells me that she's got a book that she wants to give me. And she's going to give it to me when I go to get my taxes done. And she said it might be great for Spotlight Connecticut. So we'll see. Inspiration can come from all over. Just just like what we're doing today. I was at a show at the Bushnell. I never thought that I would actually be doing a talk show on it. And you can line up your tour at the Bushnell. It's completely free. They pair you up with a volunteer. Just go to bushnell.org and click under Visit. The link that says tours. So when you scroll down on the page that's called visit and you see tours, you can fill out your information and somebody will get in touch with you there. Now, as I promised, we would continue our tour on the radio by now going into the theater. So we sat down, Clint and I, Clint Muller, my tour guide, and he got out a laser pen and he pointed to the ceiling where there's an overhead painting. This is called drama, this whole painting. It was painted by Barry Faulkner. It's a ceiling mural. It was painted by Barry Faulkner and three Prix de Rome Art Scholar winners from his New York studio, Grand Central Station. He also did the murals of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence at the National Archives in D.C., if you've ever been down there. Um, it's oil on canvas, painted on panels that took five months to complete. It's the largest ceiling mural of its kind in the United States. It's almost 200 feet long. What makes it unique is it's hung on a forest of metal rods. Cost $50,000, took five months to paint, including three months to trace out the design. In the 1980s, it cost $140,000 just to clean it because they had to set up scaffolding, bring buckets of water, etc. It probably won't be cleaned again in our lifetime because the biggest culprit was cigarette smoke. And obviously, smoking is not allowed in public buildings anymore, so it, it probably will be a while before it's cleaned again. So I'm going to start up here. There's no such thing as a central muse of drama, but that's what we refer to her as. In her hands are the masks of comedy and tragedy. Over her right shoulder is an angel. Below her are symbols and music. And this box right here, again, this is the ancient heavens. This box is referred to as a burial container. It was never referred to as a casket or a coffin, but a burial container. I'm not sure why that was chosen. Um, Below that is the night sky. We believe the night sky... Um, is represented because in ancient times we feel drama was probably in an amphitheater with big torches and darkness, etc. In this night sky you see Cancer the Crab, Leo the Lion, Gemini the Twins, Sagittarius. Um, And it reminds us of things past, etc. I'm going to deviate a little because right 
up at the top of the night sky, you see that perfectly burrowed hole in the ceiling. That was done by the production company of Phantom of the Opera. They were a touring company that was loaded beyond loaded, beyond rich, rich, rich. They would approach mid-sized theaters around the country and say, hey, if you allow us to do adjustments to your theater, you can bring in Phantom of the Opera, our, our big show, and you can have other big shows in the future. That was to support the chandelier. In the beginning, you know, when the chandelier's hung and it kind of crashes to the stage. So obviously they met with the board of directors and they said, sure. And after we talked about that overhead mural and painting, we then moved toward the stage where you see a lone lamp. They call it ghost lamp. Ghost light. Uh, ghost light is said to ward off ghosts of past performances, but really by law it has to be here because if you and I weren't here, this would be the only light on in this entire complex, you know, in this, in this whole theater right here. And it has to be near the edge of the stage for safety. Ghost light. It looks kind of weird just sitting there all by its lonesome. I didn't quite know why it was there, but I've also never been to a theater when there wasn't a show, so I didn't know. So learn something new there about that. Now, I did not realize until Clint told me, and then I did some more digging and found out that, yes, in fact, this is true. Judy Garland had terrible stage fright. I mean, you watch her in The Wizard of Oz and you say, how can that be? Judy Garland, this scenario was um, not the one representing the Bushnell, but she had such stage fright that a Bushnell employee literally had to push her on stage. And that scenario went from theater to theater to theater. Someone always had to push her on stage. That scenario was reenacted in her, that movie Judy with Renee Zellweger. So now we're digging into some history of performances and actors and actresses and shows that have been there at the Bushnell. Names of interest. I mean, Judy Garland, what... What an absolute treasure and talent she was. And, you know, here's a story that Clint probably doesn't know, and I found out after the fact. Cher performed at the Bushnell at least once, and she cooked dinner for one of my coworkers backstage. Um, obviously, they were connected because of the radio station at the time, uh, not WTIC, another radio station in Hartford that played Top 40 music. Um, but, yeah, so one of my radio buddies had a dinner prepared by Cher backstage. Don't know what they ate. I, I got to ask them some more about that. But uh, there's a fun little Bushnell behind-the-scenes story for you that I learned after I had met up with Clint. Now, in 1996, there was the presidential debate between President Bill Clinton and candidate Bob Dole. WTIC covered it, but here's some more about it that you probably didn't know from the WTIC coverage. The 1996 presidential debate between Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, the mezzanine level was boarded over to accommodate camera crews. I was also told that there was a big air, condition, air conditioning unit across the street and piping came down the aisles because they wanted to make sure the candidates did not sweat. So I ended up going online and I dug up some video footage from that and yep, yeah, it's the Bushnell, there's no mistaking it, and they look perfectly cool on stage. Not one little bit of shine on their face, not one little bit of sweat. So I guess that air conditioning uh, did the trick, didn't it? Now, you might be wondering about how they set up for shows at the Bushnell, and it really takes a significant amount of work and storage. Um, they have a significant amount of space above the stage where they'll uh, basically pull things up with chains and hide them above stage and bring them down as necessary. But then there are times where they just have to leave it in the production trailer and they end up in the most unusual of places. In a show like Lion King that may have 19 trailer loads right now, 
or phantom, whatever. Um, they can house a few in the area. The over, overflow will sit at Rentschler Field. So like when Wicked comes in April, it's a three-week performance, probably a number of trailers will be sitting over there for a few weeks. And then another interesting thing is in Hamilton, Hamilton has two stage sets for each touring company because they leapfrog. So the stage set goes, skips the current, the next venue it's going to and goes to the next one, sets up the stage, but the cast goes to the next one. Do you know what I mean? So, they, so when they travel, it's so intricate. And Lin-Manuel Miranda said he wanted the experience off-Broadway to be the same as what's being set on broad or being shown on Broadway. But not every single show at the Bushnell or any theater for that matter is as complicated or as complex. Like I said, when I was there in early November for the Light 100.5 WRCH Jason Alexander, as long as you're asking show, uh, you know, he was out there with a microphone, a few props, a table, maybe a chair or two. And that was about it. It's what they refer to as a discussion show. It's a show like Jason Alexander. It's just a one-man show. He's coming out here and talking. What kind of setup goes for some of the more basic shows? Couple or- of couple of chairs and a carpet, bottled water. So, you know, do you guys do a lot of those kinds of shows? The absolutely. spoken word shows. Absolutely. Ina Garten comes. She sells this thing out in a heartbeat. The, the Food Network star. Um, she sells it out very fast, and it's just a discussionary show here. And then now when we get back from the break, we will continue with our backstage tour of the Bushnell, literally going backstage in minutes on WTIC. This is WTIC in Hartford. Let's continue Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. That's me, and we are backstage literally now in that private tour I took at the Bushnell. You can get one as well. Visit bushnell.org for more information. Here we are in the Star's dressing room, but you'd probably know it better as the Green Room. Star's dressing room. It's also known as the Green Room. So if you ever watch Inside Edition and some of those entertainment shows, you might, oh yeah, me and Mariah Carey were in the Green Room laughing. They're talking about the Star's dressing room. It has nothing to do with the color of the room. We were initially told that the Green Room um, was probably a grassy knoll in historic times, and that's how it became known as the Green Room. But I've heard more current stories that This is the room where the star gets paid, so it's known as the green room. So over the years, this has transformed. Um, It probably doesn't look like much, but it was was renovated, I think, five, seven years ago, something like that. Stars love it because it's literally right off stage. We were barely off stage, and we're already in here. Um, When Yul Brenner came for The King and I, the room, I think, was painted green at that time, and he hated the color. So they offered his wife a palette of color, and she chose brown, and the room was painted brown, and there were brown towels waiting for him. When Carol Channing came, she was here for Hello, Dolly, and she said she wouldn't come unless it was air conditioning installed, so air conditioning got installed. She was also known to supposedly walk on a treadmill stark naked in this room. She, the stage manager would knock on the door and say, Ms. Channing, I have some questions for you. She'd say, come in, and to his surprise, she was stark naked on a, on a treadmill. Eugene Ormandy, he refused. He was a or- uh, conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. He wouldn't come unless it was a private bathroom. So there's a shower, private toilet, mirrors, sink, etc. in there. Linda Evans and Joan Collins wanted cable TV from the dynasty days. Uh, when Tyler Perry comes, he brings his own hot water heater with lemon for hot tea. Diana Ross brings her own white furniture and curtains, and everything's got to be switched out before she arrives, and there has to be white flowers waiting for her. Ed Asner came in 1989 for Born Yesterday with Madeline Kahn. The contract would say, you will occupy the green room. 
So he was the star, said he would occupy the green room, but being the chivalrous guy that he is, um, he gave it to Madeline Kahn, his co-star. So downstairs was the cinder block area where they created another green room and they called it the Ed Asner Room. That's where Bill Clinton went because he couldn't use this room during the debate because of the windows being a security risk. So Bob Dole occupied this room. I did ask when Michelle Obama came a few years ago if she was gonna be occupying this room. They said yes, they were gonna put metal sheathing over the windows. Her visit was orchestrated in such a way that she couldn't be in one spot more than three minutes, so they kept her moving throughout the backstage complex area. Um, there were bomb-sniffing dogs that were probably brought in a week or two before and during the show, and there were snipers on the surrounding buildings the day she was here. And, of course, I'm curious about the stories that you usually hear about the one bag of all-red M&Ms. Do you ever get the people who say, well, I only eat red M&Ms kind of thing? Stage manager says, we don't usually get a lot of that here because they're not here for a long time. But my friend said, a lot of them will put something weird like that, quirky, in their contract. And because if they come in and they see a little bowl of red M&Ms, they know you've read the contract. Our tour guides had a meeting here one time, and the assistant stage manager, the person who's in charge of dealing with the writer that the star produces, this is all their wants and needs. So Burt Kreischer, he's a comedian, does his, you know, whips off his shirt, he's got this hairy belly and beer gut, and he does his show, and the crowd goes wild. I saw his writer, and it was four or five listings of water. There's sparkling water, there's mineral water, there's this water, there's that water. This water you can only get from this store. There was a paragraph of salty snacks. There was a paragraph of sweet snacks. And one, you know, one of the sweet snacks was like a big Ziploc bag of peanut M&Ms. Well, that's a big bag. It's, I mean, and, I'm, and I said to her, I go, this is for one person? She says, yes. She did also see one contract where in the middle of the contract it said that they wanted mozzarella sticks with a uh, marinara dipping sauce at 150 degrees. And she happened to be talking to whoever this was, and she said, are you serious about the mozzarella sticks? And this performer said, um, I only put that in there to make sure you're reading it. So it does happen. Mm, I could go for some mozzarella sticks now. And Clint Muller, then after we were in the green room for a while, walked me into the electrician's room, which struck me as an odd place, but... I guess that for history's sake, that's where all of the signatures have gone. There's another wall where they've started to put an overflow of signatures, but let's run down some of the most identifiable names that are in there. First person to sign the wall was Fred Waring. Yes, he, was yeah, the he did a brilliant version of Silver Bells that I love, the Christmas okay. song. So I know, I know very well who he is. That's, a, that's refreshing because a lot of people don't know who he is. Um, I played him as a bumper song on my talk show last month. Oh, did you? Yes. So he signed the wall, but I don't know where it is. He was the first person to sign the wall, so it could be behind a, a bureau for all I know. The first name to peel was Sally Rand. She was a 1920s fan dancer and stripper, so I think it's kind of ironic that hers is the first name to come off. Judy Garland. Rodney Dangerfield gets no respect because his autograph is behind this fuse box right there. Oh. So even in death, he gets no respect. So it's there, but still no respect. Correct. So here's some of the more prominent ones. So Carly Simon, singer. Catherine Hepburn, she signed a local girl. She was from Hartford. This was her way of saying, okay, folks from Hollywood, you're on my turf. This is my theater. That was her way. Ricky Nelson. This I thought was kind of cool. You see John Riott? There's his daughter, Bonnie Riott, and she goes, hi, Dad, and she points an arrow up to his name. Adina Menzel, she drew a Wicked Witch. Uh, Anita Baker, right there. Sigourney Weaver, right there. Leon Redbone. Uh, Joan Rivers, I love this theater. Tony Tennille from the Captain Tennille. 
Uh, Mel Brooks, Bob Hope, Lucy Arnaz, Howie Mandel before America's Got Talent. He was here in 93 and 87. Rita Moreno, Carol King, Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. My dad actually went to high school with June Carter Cash. Dionne Warwick, The Four, Four seasons, seasons right there. Frankie Valley there, do you know? I couldn't find, I, I was looking for the other two and I couldn't find Frankie Valley. That but, looks like it. Okay, let's see. Guy Lombardo, Should Old Acquaintances Be Forgot? B.B. King, Jose Feliciano. Natalie Cole and Nat King Cole, they signed separately, but yet together. They were here two different times. Here's Peter, Paul, and Mary. Oh, my goodness. And there's Mary down there, Mary Travers, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, Did they draw a graphic of themselves or just, just one of them, the face? There's that one. There's the nose. Okay. And there's Mary Travers. The, the hair? I yeah. see the hair. Okay. Yep. Well, as we finish our show, there's so much more that you could talk about concerning the Bushnell in Hartford, but we're unfortunately out of time, so you'll have to take a tour yourself, but I thought it'd be appropriate to wrap things up with Peter, Paul, and Mary, since I was so moved to see their signature. My dad actually had the chance to see them in the 1960s in Pittsburgh. If you want to take your tour of the Bushnell, go to bushnell.org, look under Visit for Tours. It's free. We'll be back next week on WTIC. Bye-bye. Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Embracing what's fun with Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080.